Hello and welcome to the Good Life Review podcast where we share the sounds of the stories of up and coming writers. I am your host, Trelana Daniel. Today, we here at the Good Life Review podcast have a holiday surprise. We have a writer that had his book recently published from a Nebraska-based publisher called Split Lip Press. He describes his upbringing as being from the upper Midwest. Hi, my name is Brett Beeble. Um, the, the book is called 48 Blitz. It's out now from Split Lip Press. Great. So um, anybody who's wanting to buy this book, what, what, what do you think this book is really about? It's a great question. I think this book is really about the contradictions of the Midwest. And I think those contradictions are, they sort of mirror the contradictions that, that I see when I, when I look around the country, um, the contradictions in sort of sports, football, especially in politics, this kind of um, real genuine commitment to, to, to friendliness and um, openness and sincerity. Um, and also a certain kind of strain of, of traditionalism that I think can be claustrophobic or enclosing um, and, and trying to sort of reconcile those two things and, and see them both fully and clearly um, is I think a big part of what the book is trying to do. On that vein of contradictions, I asked Brett about one of the short fiction pieces in the book entitled Lincoln Highway Jesus. There's the sermon happening where Brett paints a picture of a preacher talking to his sleepy parishioners about the potential fate of losing energy. I think that that story really is about contradictions. I think that story is about um, a kind of genuine belief that the people in the story have and the narrator sort of new to the situation. <laughs> and so I think the narrator's not sure whether to be moved or whether to be skeptical. <laughs> um, uh, and that, that narrator actually I think recurs Three, three times throughout the book or a couple times throughout the book. Um, and I think that's, that's really specific to kind of her situation is, you know, she's, she's with this guy who sort of has a rough past and, and, and has kind of found Jesus, right? <laughs> and she's, and she's uh, you know, not sure how genuine that is or whether it should be skeptical of it. And I think it's both. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, oftentimes I think that kind of faith gets treated really skeptically in popular media. Um, but there's also something really kind of sincere about it um, in sort of my experience. And so trying to grapple with, with how, you, how you appreciate that sincerity without also kind of being taken in <laughs> um, to, to things that, that might, not, might not be um, what, you're, what you're after value-wise. So I think that that's a story, a really good uh, point, because that story really does kind of capture that contradiction, I think. The next story we talked about was called Big Red Nation, in which Brett tackles a difficult topic about the death penalty in Nebraska and the research that went into learning about the method of execution that we use. I did, I did have to do, I mean, there's a lot of research in the book. Um, and one of the things I looked into was the, I think Nebraska had a death penalty referendum in 2016, and it was a really kind of a confusing ballot measure, <laughs> like voting, voting yes meant meant that you supported repeal of the death penalty and voting no meant that you didn't. And so there, there, I was doing some of that research and just sort of um, kind of thinking about, about those sorts of systems and, and how they're put in place and, 
and, and, and, and all of that. So I think there, there was a lot of kind of research on that end. <laughs> um, it's always interesting with fiction trying to um, preserve the freedom um, <laughs> uh, that, that you have uh, while also making it feel, feel authentic. I think that's actually part of why Nebraska is the setting for the collection is because it was, um, since I, I, I've been there a lot and I'm somewhat familiar with it, um, but never actually lived there, I think it's a little bit more freeing, right? You can kind of preserve a certain mystery that I think is really useful in fiction, as opposed to writing about, you know, your town, right? Where it's like there's this tendency to cram in every single detail that you know, um, rather than rather than just the, the power of suggestion. Um, so I, I think that's that's something that I was finding as I was writing the book. Um, and, and, and that's sort of why the, the setting kind of stuck out to me in certain ways, yeah. Yeah, so when you're doing a research on the death penalty, like what uh, what kind of things were you, what popped up for you that you weren't expecting? Well, I didn't know that uh, the, 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 there was an execution, I think, in Nebraska. The first one after they reinstated it used fentanyl, which was really surprising to me. I think it was the first one in the history of the United States to use fentanyl um, and the- Yeah, it was really controversial. Yeah, yeah. It was last year. Yeah, yeah. And the, you know, the procurement process for those sorts of things. I'm really interested in, in kind of systems. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of stories about systems in the book. Um, and so, you know, the, it's always surprising to me like, yeah, okay, those are like the vaccine, right? Like this thing has to be made. Like, like somebody has to, you know, like bit by bit assemble it. Um, and I think it's easy to forget about all of that. And so kind of thinking deeply about like, where does this stuff come from and how do you get it? Um, and, and what are the rules that should govern how people get it? And uh, all of those things I think was, was something that was surprising to me and just sort of the, you know, that there was a, that was a, and I think still is a thing, right? There's the, the pharmaceuticals are making it a lot harder to get the, the, the cocktail, right, for, for that they use for the death penalty. And um, I think that's one of the big controversies. And so just really being interested in sort of the ways that the systems have to change and systems run into to different things and have to kind of evolve. Um, and, and the ethical implications of that um, are really fascinating to me. And I think there's a lot of that in the book. You know, um, there's a, a fast food chain called called Mul Mul Mulberries, <laughs> which is fictional, invented um, that runs throughout the book. Um, sort of their advertising and and the system of food production, right? And then the food gets sold as one thing, but you know, in a way that makes people forget the process of making it. <laughs> I think that's really interesting, um, and and trying to kind of really focus on those things is something that I think a lot about. To learn more about Brett's fascination with systems and irony, I asked him about other writers that get him inspired. Lately, I've been reading a lot of uh, just really, really short fiction. So um, Sarah Freely, she's she's great. She's one of the blurbers of the book, <laughs> but, but but her stuff is is really really good. Megan Phillips um, she writes a lot of awesome, really short uh, flash pieces. Um, and then I also really like to read like DeLillo. <laughs> uh, so, you know, who's like, I think a really good writer of systems, <laughs> uh, whether it's garbage or, um, you know, the, the nuclear apparatus or whatever. So um, I'm, I'm kind of always go back and forth between stuff that is uh, pretty minimalist and like first person and stripped down and stuff that, that, that is more kind of stylistically I guess, innovative or experimental. <laughs> um, uh, and so that, there's, those are the two modes that are kind of 
most prevalent in the book where, you know, there are stories that are very kind of stripped down um, and sparse and stories that have like, you know, nested parentheses that go three deep, right? <laughs> so um, kind of kind of flipping back and forth between those two modes, um, because I, I think that that kind of does, for me at least, helps to show kind of that, that yeah, these systems exist and then there's, there's people too. <laughs> um, and sort of trying to capture the, the, the aliveness of both um, and, and how they intertwine is, is part of why I find those two styles and those two modes useful and, and helpful. I guess there's one writer I forgot to mention is uh, it's Tara Isabel Zambrano. She's writing some really great stuff too, really short fiction. So what do you do to keep your writing fresh and um, how do you find inspiration? I think the part of the form, like I write a lot of very short fiction um, and, and I think kind of inherently in the form is keep, it keeps things fresh um, just because there's always a, you, you have to generate so many ideas um, to, to make it work. And so I think that's, that's part of it. Um, and then also, I'm just really interested in a lot of different stuff. So uh, listening to, to podcasts, watching documentaries, I think documentaries and docu-series are, are great. Um, whether, whether it's sort of like a dramatic, you know, thing um, or, or kind of the more the PBS style, right? <laughs> uh, investigative journalism, I think uh, always kind of helps keep things fresh. So just sort of kind of always being open to not current events exactly, but but kind of detailed look at the stories behind the things that are happening. Th that's the stuff that sort of really is kind of like, oh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm also super interested in technology. Um, there's a couple of stories in the book that reflect that. Um, just algorithms and sort of how those decisions impact our lives, right? Um, and, and I think that's a, that's an area that's so big and so broad and there's always so much happening and it's changing all the time. And so I think that helps keep things fresh too. Um, yeah. So if you were to pick a podcast or a documentary that you think everybody in the world should listen to, what do you think, what would you suggest? Uh, man, I've been listening to Throughline um, a lot, which is an NPR podcast that, that does like historical stuff. They had an episode about, about litter that was just really, really fascinating. And it kind of like typifies what I'm talking about, I think, because like the sort of point of the, of the, of the podcast, as I took it was like, yeah, you should recycle that bottle, right? But like, instead of pointing a finger at the person who doesn't recycle it, look at the system, right? Like, like milk used to come in glass bottles and then they'd be washed and replaced, right? And that's just a very different kind of system environmentally than, than producing kind of disposable containers. And so I think that that's one that I, I really enjoy. I think Frontline on PBS does, does great work most of the time, just, just in-depth, good storytelling. I think they do some of the best storytelling out there, honestly. Um, uh, and so um, those are those are things that I that I watch fairly regularly. Um, uh, yeah, I think those are probably the two that I mentioned. I also uh, listen to sports podcasts quite a bit. Um, so there's a Thirty for Thirty podcast series, and they've done some really good stuff about about um, gymnastics, USA gymnastics, um, and about horse racing. And, and kind of the ethical concerns uh, that, that happen uh, uh, in, in that industry, um, which, which are really, really good. And they do it in a way that I think is provocative, right? And examining kind of these, this, the way that, you know, you see the Kentucky Derby on TV, right? But look, like, like it's supported by all kinds of other stuff. And, and I think everything is like that, right? So it's, it's not like, a, you know, don't watch the Kentucky Derby. It's like, a, you know, like everything is supported by, by all of that. It's this, you know, 
Major League Baseball doesn't pay their minor leaguers very well, right? It's really hard to find ethical consumption in anything. <laughs> um, and so I think trying to sort of find it um, and, and, and highlight it and also kind of maintain that sort of understanding of people <laughs> and why we do these things and how we do these things. Um, so kind of that edge between empathy and, and bitterness right, <laughs> is, is what part of the book is trying to walk. I think a lot of times it's a thin line, um, but that's the kind of stuff that really speaks to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is a really thin line. I think I just yeah. got into a conversation with the guy I'm dating about um, where we work at the university. And as you know, that's a system. Yeah. Um, every university kind of has their own board of trustees or presidents or chancellors. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very methodical system. And, you know, when yeah. it comes to difficult times and difficult uh, budgetary constraints, there's a lot of considerations to make with regard to, you know, how you're going to balance the budget. And I work on the administrative side of the house and he works on the faculty side. So it's very yeah. interesting to have conversations with him because he has a very different mindset as far as like how... Yeah how things should be working and be, be done differently. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's cool. Have you thought of this? You know, like some, some of those, yeah. those things you don't always think about. Yeah, and, and higher ed, I think is really interesting to me in this way, because just, it, it is this sort of, it operates a lot like all these other systems, right? And I think there's sort of a, a higher ed exceptionalism sometimes or has been at, at certain places I've been. Um, and, and so I think kind of understanding that is maybe maybe especially important even, even within that structure, right? And it's something that we talk about with students a lot too, um, or that, that I talk about in some of my classes, right? Just like, like I think that's a, a way in for students to have good conversations. It's like, well, why does the university have this policy, right? Why might it be there? Why might it, why might it have negative consequences, right? And I, I think that's a really, yeah, you're right, right? <laughs> the, the university is a system too. Um, maybe putting it that simply is just the... Yeah, education in and of itself is a system. So it's kind of, yeah, a, yeah you think of higher education, but you also have to think K-12 and where does all that content mm -hmm. come from? Who creates that curriculum, you know, yeah. and how legislated is it? It's, there's a lot of legislation that goes into those conversations. And I didn't know that <laughs> when I was in school, it took yeah. a lot of education and digging and understanding more about that and podcast even uh, to help me yeah. kind of get to the bottom of what, what is it that we're learning in school and how are we learning it? Yeah. I always think about um, David Simon. He's the guy who created The Wire, the TV show. And, and he always talks about, um, you know, the biggest drawback uh, to, to the newsroom cuts when, when back when the newspapers, you know, and they still are, right, started cutting a lot of local reporters is like, nobody's at the zoning board meeting, right? <laughs> and, then, and at first you're kind of like, what do you the zoning board but like yeah that's that's super important like um, everything kind of starts there it's those choices that feel small and feel boring and 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 almost like mind-numbingly so that that actually sort of you know have very serious impacts I think a lot of it is just like well what does activism look like um and and it looks I think sometimes often different than um than, than the popular image or than, than what we think about, um, which is the kind of, you know, the big mass. And that stuff's important, right? The big mass protest movements. I think it's also sort of the very small things, right? That, that aren't small at all. <laughs> they just seem that way. <laughs> Next up for conversation, I asked Brett what he thought the good life meant. I think the good life is a sort of thoughtful life. 
um, good access to, to, to information and, and, and an open discussion around it. I think one of the, one of the frustrations for me over the last, especially I think the last four or five years, but, but I think even going beyond that is that um, there's a lot of football in the book, and I think politics and football are so closely tied in terms of how they get turned into a game. Um, and, and I think it makes sense for why we do that, um, because it, it generates interests, right? I mean, I, mean I, I find myself spending way more time on the horse race than I should because it's, it's sort of fun, right? And engaging and strategic to think that way, I think it can also be really destructive. So to me, I think the, the good life, <laughs> um, just speaking very broadly, is being able to have a system where those conversations um, can happen without them being you know, winner take all and charged and competitive and hyper competitive. Um, uh, and I think, I think that's sort of one of the things that I've noticed, especially, especially lately, I think that's, that would be a big help <laughs> um, nationally and, and, and all over. And, and I think I see the Midwest as sort of promising in that way, because there is a tradition of kind of friendliness and open discussion and, um, and those kinds of things. Um, and, and so that's, that's part of what, what the book is trying to grapple with, right? Like, why isn't that happening? Why is, why is discourse polarized everywhere? Right? Um, even in places that sort of pride themselves on being open and sincere um, and, and sort of looking to explore those things. So that's, that's kind of what the good life would mean to me is creating an environment where you, where you can talk in a way that isn't incredibly competitive and winner take all, all the time, right? Where you can have public discussion and public debate um, that, that, that moves and goes places um, and kind of appreciates complexity and nuance um, and is willing to kind of actively make trade-offs, right? Rather than saying, well, we can't do that. It would create this problem, right? Um, and, and saying, well, it might create that problem, but we choose this set of values over that one. And, and it's not a perfect choice. Um, and being willing to kind of, I think, accept that. Um, that would be sort of my vision of, of the good life. I realize that's a broad answer, not an individual one. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but but I think I think that's that's how I how I imagine it in terms of on, on a large scale. Yeah. We hope this interview generates some excitement around Brett's new book. And to give you some more insights into his work, he's going to read you one of the stories. But before he does that, let me read you a short blurb about his book. Set along Nebraska's Interstate 80, the 48 stories in Brett Bible's debut collection, 48 Blitz, introduces characters who search for roadkill, play high school football, drink on rooftops, and strive to find purpose amid the cornfields and humidity of the Great Plains. Experimental and character-driven, 48 Blitz goes inside the heads of characters not often seen in literary fiction, inviting readers to immerse themselves within, rather than fly over, the wide-open Midwestern prairie. I'll read the first story in the collection, um, which, is, which is Big Red Nation. <laughs> so here we go. The story's called uh, Big Red Nation. The state of Nebraska executed Matthew Allen Nowinski at 10.47 a.m. on a Friday, some 32 hours before the biggest Husker football game in at least a decade. In fact, in the days leading up to the execution, some 200 or so citizens had written to the governor asking for a stay, and most of these letters said basically the same thing. Nowinski was a fan. I support the death penalty. We don't want the bad karma. What's the harm in waiting a few days, or better yet, until the season's over? He's going to go anyway, surely a month or two either way doesn't matter, and doesn't this happen all the time? For his part, the governor conference was staffed that morning and at least one advisor urged him to just issue the stay. After all, the letters were right. Nowinski would be dead no matter what. 
why risk angering a couple hundred diehards and maybe losing votes when we could just as easily say it's about reconfirming a few details or because our fentanyl supplier fell through or any number of other procedural reasons, this advisor argued, and the governor himself appeared to consider it. Then someone else piped up and said there was no way a couple hundred Husker fans who supported the death penalty were ever going to vote for a Democrat. And you know how conspiratorial everyone is these days. We delay and give a bogus reason the press is sure to come sniffing around. And if we're honest, if we say we're worried about bad karma, then isn't that like saying the death penalty is something we should be ashamed of when we all know it's nothing if not the truest and purest form of justice we got? Not to mention biblically sanctioned. And if we frame it as an act of mercy, well, then we look like bleeding hearts, don't we? Remember what they did to Dukakis? Too much risk, not enough reward, she said. Ultimately, the latter argument won out. A small group of protesters gathered outside the state prison in Lincoln, most of them Catholic nuns who didn't care much about football. Although there was one, Sister Perpetua William, who pinned a big, big red end to her jacket and talked to one of the journalists about the days of Tom Osborne and Tommy Frazier and how if she wore the big hat, one of them would be the real St. Thomas and the others beatified at the very least. They prayed for Nowinski, read letters from some old friends talking up his generosity, how he used to buy drinks for the whole bar after touchdowns ask God to bring healing and peace to all touched by his crimes. Inside the execution room, Nowinski knew very little about any of this and cared even less. He'd resigned himself to his fate years ago. He ordered mulberries for his last meal, chatted with the guards about Ohio State being overrated and let it be known that were he a betting man, he'd sure as hell take the points. When it came time for his last words, he gave a wave in the direction of his witnesses and said, I love my Huskers, but they get beat tomorrow. No way I'll be sorry I missed it. Somebody laughed quietly. Then they brought out the needle and everything went mostly as expected. Nowinski coughed a few times. At the very end, according to one of the media observers, he turned the deepest red you ever saw, though exactly what kind of omen this was, nobody could quite figure. If you want to read more about this author or others, you can head to thegoodlifereview.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Review podcast. We are very excited to keep producing these podcasts and bringing you great stories from our current writers. Huge thank you to our editorial team that is mostly based out of Nebraska and almost entirely made up of writers from the flyover states, which is why we don't want your work to be overlooked. If you have a piece you'd like to submit, head on over to our submittable page, thegoodlifereviewsubmittable.com. Don't forget to like us on social media, Good Life Review on Facebook and The Good Life Lit Mag on Twitter. Thanks for listening.